0: Before you before you applaud, I, I think now is a good time to bring up some prayer requests. If we speak in Jesus' name and we speak in faith and we have eyes of faith and when we bring our petitions before the Lord, we, we don't only ask but we expect in faith that God is going to move in the situations. So tonight I want to pray specifically for the Khan family. You know that there's been a death in that family and, and that family is hurting, so we're going to pray for them. We're also going to pray for the Millers. Courtney Miller's grandmother is a uh, not doing well, so they're traveling back to, to see her. But on top of those requests, I know there are other requests in this room, So. Let's pray right now that God would intervene. Lord, I thank you that you are a God of miracles and that you are a God of provision. Lord, you are the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. So we come with a spirit of expectation, Lord, that you will bring peace to the Kahn family, bring healing, oh God, to the Miller family, oh God. We know you are able to do exceeding and abundantly above all that we can ask. Or think Lord and we pray for revival in this city and in this state in this country Lord let us be the agent of change let us be the vessel that you use oh God we thank you we pray right now open our hearts to hear the word open our minds oh God that the word will fall on good ground that in due season it will bring forth fruits Lord we love you and thank you in Jesus name Jesus name Amen Um, So with that being said, the youth are going to be staying in tonight. At this time, I do want to release, is there one more Elements class? No, okay, no more Elements class. All right, so the children, children can all be released for Power Hour. And everyone else, you may be seated. I want to say thank you for joining us on a Wednesday night, a beautiful summer night. I want to say welcome to the Doherty's who are passing through. We're happy to have them with us. And as most of you know, this year on Wednesday nights, we've been going through select uh, books of the Bible each month. And in this month, we've been doing Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians, and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. So tonight, I want to wrap up this set of books by talking about the book of Galatians. Now, I'm going to read out of the first two chapters, and then I'm going to tie some other things in with this. And I didn't really have a good title at the time that I told them, so I just called it Galatians But if I were to give it another title, for you to kind of have an idea of where we're going to be going with this, is simply that the God of relationships. Our God is a God of relationships. So in Galatians chapter 1, and you don't have to stand because we're going to read several verses, but we're going to start in verse 1 and we're going to read through several uh, of these verses here. It says this, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for our sins. That he might deliver us from this present evil world. According to the will of God and our Father. I just, Just if you can in your minds highlight in verse 4 there. Who gave himself. For our sins, that He might deliver us from the present evil world. Because this really is an emphasis that Paul is making here... ...as he starts this letter to the church in Galatia. Verse 6 says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from Him that called you into the grace of Christ... ...unto another gospel, which is not another... ...but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. What well, Paul is saying in that verse... Because King James speak, right, it seems kind of confusing. He says that you hear another gospel, but it it is not another. Paul is trying to say that there's only one gospel. There's only one truth, only one good news. But the world is presenting you with another gospel. But there is only one. There's only one truth. And so he's already setting the stage of why he's writing this letter. That this church has been bewitched, right, is another way that he says it. They've been fooled ...by this perversion of the gospel. And he seeks to correct it. Verse 8 says, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you... ...than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And as we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you that ye have received, let him be accursed. You know when a scripture repeats itself back to back, it's important. He's really having to say, listen, I really want you to understand. I don't care who it is, if it's the president of the United States, if it's a prime minister, if it's an angel himself that comes down from heaven and preaches any other gospel than you received, let him be accursed. He is not to be listened to. Verse 10, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation. Being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Paul. What Paul is doing here is he's not bragging. He's not saying that he's not boasting in the fact that he was higher than his peers in the Jewish religion. But what he's trying to do is say, listen, when I was acting as a Jew, under their traditions, I was held up here above my peers. But none of that ultimately mattered. None of that amounted to anything. I did all of that. I had all this zeal for the Jewish traditions, and it amounted to nothing. But then in verse 15, he says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace, to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. I love that. Paul starts off by saying, he says, I was this great Jew. I was a Jew among Jews. I, I was a learned man. I knew all of this stuff. I was held in high esteem among the Jews. So when Jesus came to me to, de- to deliver me from all of that nonsense, he didn't tell me to go preach to the Jews. He told me to go preach to the heathen. Now, for a Jew, for, for an a elite Jew, this would have been a big slap in the face. Because, no, Jews are, the, are God's saved people. They're the chosen generation. Everybody else is just out there left behind. But God is telling Paul that, no, your ministry is going to be to the Gentiles. And Paul received the, receives this with gladness. And we get into chapter 2. Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation, and communicated unto them that the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles... But privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And I just want you to remember that word circumcised. Because at the very end we're going to kind of tie all of that back together. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus. That they might bring us into bondage. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But out of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. What does all of that speech mean? It means simply this. Here were these people who claimed these titles, who came in to spy on Paul, saying, who is this man that he would come in and preach against the Jews? Who would come in and attempt to to convert these Gentiles? And Paul basically says, I don't care who you are. I don't care what title you hold, what position you hold, how wealthy you are. God does not look at that. God is not a respecter of persons, meaning that God does not look at you versus you differently and say, well, you have a bachelor's degree, therefore I'm going to use you more than I'm going to use you because you're not as educated. That's not how God operates. God operates and says, I don't care what your name is. I care that you know what my name is. And so this is what Paul is trying to to tell the church at Galatia. That these Galatians, they put so much trust in these people who claim to be great teachers, who claim to have all these titles, but they're not preaching the name of Jesus. They're preaching their own name. So in verse 11, we skip down to verse 11. It says, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face ...because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled themselves likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou being a Jew... "...livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law." For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I highlighted verse 21 because I don't ever want this to be said of me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. I don't ever want to be said that I frustrated the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law then Christ is dead in vain. So I know many of you are familiar with the story and and familiar with what's going on here, but let me just kind of set the stage. What what took place in chapter 2? Paul, whose ministry is to the Gentiles, comes down and he found that Peter, the one who delivered the keys of the kingdom to heaven, the one who delivered the message on Pentecost, who brought the salvation message was so afraid of what the other Jews might think that when they showed up, he said, whoa, okay, you, you Gentiles, I'm going to leave you over here. I'm going to go back over with my Jews. And he separated himself. And, and Paul became very upset because he's like, the whole point is, is that we are identified by Christ. Our salvation comes in faith through Christ, not under the law. And yet what you're doing is by saying that I identify myself as a Jew and therefore separate myself from the Gentiles, you are putting yourself back under the law. Again, you are saying it is the law which defines you. And he said because you are doing that, you are frustrating the grace of God because no flesh can be justified by the law. Why? It's not that the law was bad, but the law requires perfection and no man in themselves is perfect. Thus we needed Christ to fulfill the law for us so that we could wear His righteousness, right? Being not identified by the law, but by the righteousness of Christ. So here we find Paul is fighting a battle on two fronts. First, Paul is disappointed with Peter because instead of standing up against these false teachers and hypocritical Jews, he cowered away from the Gentiles in order to preserve His status. Paul understood that God was not impressed with anyone's status. The only name that mattered was his own, meaning God's name, not Paul's name, not Peter's name. Now, this to me makes perfect sense for the character of Peter. If you look at Peter throughout his life, he starts off very immature and makes many mistakes. It doesn't make him a bad person, it makes him a human being who, like many others, have to grow. And I find it very interesting when you read later on, when you read 1st and 2nd Peter, it's a complete 180 from the Peter who we find here. The Peter in 1st and 2nd Peter has a very different outlook on how to treat others and how that we are all one under Christ. But that takes time, that takes maturity. And this is what Paul is doing here. Paul is not yelling at Peter saying you're stupid and you, you know, what are you doing? But Paul is, is correcting him as Paul does so many times throughout his epistles. He is trying to show Paul or Peter that you need to work on your relationship with God and realize that we are all one. But the bigger battle at hand that Paul is fighting is the fact that the church had been infiltrated by false teachers who were able to persuade the Galatians that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was no longer sufficient for their sins. Man, how would you like to stand before Jesus And say, yeah, I know you did that whole dying and rising again thing. But I didn't think that was quite enough. So I instructed my people they needed to do this other stuff also. I mean, essentially what they're doing is they're putting themselves in the place of God. They are determining what is necessary for salvation by adding to what God said. You see, from the beginning, God really wanted relationship. That is what all of this is is, is about here. In order to really know the the whole story here, you you first have to go back to the Old Testament. Because these Jews were trying to say that you have to fulfill the Old Testament law to, to be a true Christian. But let's see what God was really trying to do in the first place. You go all the way back to the garden and you find a God that communed with Adam. I just try to imagine what that would be like, to hear God speak with me in the cool of the evening, the Bible says. God was a God who won a relationship. He gave everything to Adam. He gave him dominion over the whole earth because God loved Adam. And he still loves us today. But, of course, Adam's sin, man's sin, separated that relationship. It created a fracture in the relationship between God and man. So God starts from the very beginning in chapter 3, God starts the process of reconciliation. Right? He says, he gives a promise, he says, listen, you have messed up, but from the woman's seed, it's going to crush the head of the serpent and the serpent's going to bruise the heel of the seed. So from the very beginning in the third chapter, we already see God working a promise to restore the relationship between God and man because that is what it was all about. Beyond that, he begins to speak through prophets and judges. He works miracles and signs and wonders. And time and again, we see God saving Israel from the impending doom that they have brought upon themselves. But despite all of this, the nation of Israel disregarded God's attempts at a real relationship. Instead, they clung to laws and traditions to justify themselves. They claimed to be a holy nation but continue to prove time and time again that ultimately they thought they could fix their problem of sin. We look back to Adam and Eve. When they sin, what do they do? They say, well, we're going to take these leaves and we're going to cover our sin. They thought they had the ability to hide their sin. Aaron, we see the story of Aaron building the golden calf because the people were frustrated and unsure of what's going on. And they say, well, I know what we'll do. We'll we'll build a golden calf because he's the God who saved us. So again, they sin and they think that they have a way to fix it. We read of a story in the book of Isaac or Isaiah, which this story is dumbfounding to me. We see the story of a man who takes some wood and he takes one part of it and he builds a fire and cooks food on it. And he takes one part of it and he uses it to build a shelter. And then he takes the third part of it and he builds an idol to worship and thanks the wood for providing for him. So this wood that he had total control over, that he used to build shelter and fire, he's now worshiping. But it is this constant attempt for for Israel to cover their own mistakes, to provide for their own way. But we don't do that today, do we? I mean, you know, we say that God fights our battles, but when someone does us wrong, we feel the need to set them right. We feel the need to kind of get that little jab in like you offended me, so I got to be able to get back at you. But God fights my battles. Right. God is the provider. God provides all of my needs. But, you know, I'm a little short on cash this month, so I'm going to withhold my tithes and offerings so I can make ends meet. But God's my provider. And the truth is, is there's so many other ways that we say this. We we say that that God is love and we say that God loves us. But then we feel unloved and we, we do things. We, we take substances and we, we watch things we shouldn't watch. We do things to fill the void of love that we think should be there. But, but we espouse with our mouth that God is love. Because we as humans in our sin nature are constantly trying to find our own way to fix the problem. And God the whole time is saying, no, the whole point is this is a relationship. You're to depend on me and I will help you in those situations. Now fast forward to to close to the end of the Old Testament to the book of Micah. The prophet Micah lived around the same time as the prophet Isaiah and had a similar purpose. He was called by God to pronounce judgment over Israel. And much like Paul, Micah has to speak directly against false teachers who are perverting God's word. After delivering a fiery message of their fate, if they do not change, Micah tells them not to give up. For if they will change their ways, and if they will endure the season, something great is going to happen. Listen to what Micah chapter 5, and and I wish I had time to really read through all of this. I was sharing some of this with Pastor Powell. But for a little more context, you should go back later and read chapter 4. And it talks about telling Israel to continue to, to, to stay in pain. Because if you do, like a woman, you will give birth to something. Something great. Now in in chapter 5 he continues this. Listen to what Micah chapter 5 verse 1 says. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. ...whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrians shall come into our land." God is telling the people that they have sinned, but ultimately God is still in control. If they will just be faithful to God, He will do a mighty work for them. But not just for Israel, but for the whole earth. Because this should sound a little familiar, what was mentioned in verse 2 here, that out of Bethlehem a ruler would come. That though Bethlehem was small and insignificant, that from Bethlehem a ruler Of Israel would come and that that ruler was from old from everlasting and that that ruler would bring about peace even back then God is trying to tell them that if you would be faithful you don't see yet but the Messiah is coming the Messiah is going to be born through your pain and through your suffering but you just have to be faithful you have to maintain that relationship in order to see that come to pass Now, in chapter 6, God tells them how to go about doing this. Because if you read chapters 1 and 2, there is a great pronouncement of judgment. A great pronouncement of fiery wrath that's going to come against Israel and and, and bondage and all the stuff that's going to happen to Israel because of their sin. So if you think their sin is so great, I, I think about this in my terms, in human terms, if you... Thinking humanly here, if you do something really bad against me, in my human mind, I'm thinking you got to do something really good to make up for that really bad thing you just did. Right? Be honest. We do this in relationships sometimes. Someone says something to us, our spouse does something that really hurts us, really offends us. So then we expect that that spouse should have to do some big grand gesture to kind of make up for their mistake. Because that's the way we think about it. We think that we have to to earn or to justify salvation. But listen to what God tells them is the plan of how they're going to fix all of this. Chapter 6, verse 3 says, O my people, for what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered unto Shittim, unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression?" The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Paul's right there. When I read that, I had to go back and read it like three more times. First, he's saying very clearly, like like, thousands of rams, that's not what's going to make up for your mistakes here. Burnt offerings, that's not what's going to make up for your mistake here. And then he says this phrase that offering your firstborn, the first fruit, that's not going to make up for your sin either. And If you think about what just came before that, talking about this ruler that would come. Of course, Jesus was the firstborn offered for our sin. But see, the contrast that's being made here is that you, me, as a human, we cannot atone for our sins. We cannot be the ones to make up for the mistakes we made, the sins that we make. Only God gives us that salvation, right? So listen to hear what he expects. Verse 8, he has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. He didn't ask for any great outward sign, any any great sacrifice. He said, what you need to do is you need to love mercy. You need to do justly. You need to walk humbly with God. The antidote to your situation is to do that which is right. Love, mercy, and walk humbly with God. And why? Why these three things? It's very simple. Because first, when you walk humbly with God in a relationship, you begin to get to know the character of God. And God is full of mercy. And the more you get to know God, the more you become like God. And you can execute mercy in the place of judgment toward others. And the more you get to know God who is perfect, and the more you put on His righteousness, the more you can do justly. You see, sometimes we put the cart before the horse. We think that if we will do all the right things first, then we can be saved, or then we can be holy. And God's saying you can't because you are not perfect. He is simply saying that if you would first love me and become like me, then you will be holy then you will begin to do the right things. Then you will be that person that you're wanting to be, but it comes from me because I am the source of all of those things. What I'm trying to get at with all of this rambling is simply this, that God doesn't want your money. God doesn't want your talent. God doesn't want your your great oratory skills. God doesn't want any of those things if he doesn't first have your heart. You can give God every dime out of your wallet. But if He doesn't have your heart, you've wasted all your money. You can give God every minute of every day at the church doing tasks, doing what we sometimes call ministry, which sometimes turns into busy work. Because if God doesn't first have your heart, you are wasting your time. You can speak the most eloquent speech In front of the president, in front of the whole United Nations. But if God does not have your heart, you are wasting your breath. But here's the great thing. When you give your heart to God, by default, you will want to give God your time. You will want to give God your talents. You want to give God your money. Not because God needs your money. Because you see this gift of salvation is so precious. You begin to think, what can I do to help further this message? What ways can I help the kingdom grow so that others can experience the salvation that I've experienced? Listen to what Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34 says. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Under the first covenant, sins were not forgiven, or I should say they were not removed as though they ever happened. They were simply rolled ahead. But God is saying the greater covenant that I have is when my word is written in your heart. And when that takes place, your sins aren't rolled ahead, they're removed as though they never happened in the first place. The writer of Hebrews goes on to explain that Jesus died to bring about this new covenant, a covenant that was not based on the good deeds of people, but on a right relationship between man and God. Listen to chapter 8, verses 7 through 10 in Hebrews. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them... He saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts." and I will be able or and I will be to them a god and they shall be to me a people. This is why Jesus himself also said when he was asked what the greatest commandment was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Remember earlier at the very beginning I told you, remember the word circumcision. Right? We're going to bring that back. You see, when Abraham was given the command, given the the, the word from God to, to enact circumcision. He had already received the promise. The circumcision was a sign of the promise. The circumcision did not bring about the promise. But the Jews over time began to get it twisted. And this is what we find in the book of Galatians. That they equated the act of circumcision as getting salvation. They began to believe that I have to get circumcised so that I can be saved. When God was telling them from the beginning that circumcision was supposed to be a sign of your salvation. And that's why in the New Testament, Jesus said, I don't want to circumcise your flesh. I want to circumcise your heart. Because if it's a sign of salvation, what that means is when you're saved, it brings about a change in your heart. And there's where the root issue lied from the very beginning. God is a God of relationships. Relationship was broken in the garden, but restored on Calvary. And God is saying to us, to this church, to this world, that we're hurting and people are constantly looking for ways to fix a relationship. But the relationship can only be mended when we have a heart that has been circumcised. As we close, I want to give a challenge. I just want to take a few minutes for us to pray. But here's, I want to do something very specific. Sometimes I think what happens is we hear these messages on relationships. And and, and by preachers much, much greater than myself who preach messages that are very convicting about how we need to change and how we need to, to, to increase our relationship with God. And we say, okay, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go home and I'm going to fast for seven days but you've never successfully fasted one whole day. Or I'm going to read five chapters of my Bible every morning, but you don't even read one verse in the morning. So we make goals that are unrealistic. You see, relationships take time. I've been married for 16 years now. It's kind of hard to believe. But I've been married for 16 years now. And I can tell you that my marriage with my wife is better now than it was even at the beginning. And the reason that it's better now than it was even at the beginning is because I've gotten to know my wife in a way that I did not know her when we first got married. Because that relationship takes time and things come out in our character and we learn that that sometimes I have to extend grace, sometimes she has to extend grace. Sometimes I'm the strength, sometimes she's the strength. But it's this process, it's this relationship and we get to, to trust one another. And we get to appreciate one another for the many sacrifices that we both make for each other and for our children. And so because of that, there are things that I do differently now in my marriage than I did when we first got married. I'm a little, I've learned that my wife has certain uh, love languages. So I know if I want to make her feel loved, I'm going to do those things that she enjoys, that she makes her feel like she's being loved. Not the things that I think she should enjoy, right? Because it makes more sense to me, but, but that's, not my, that's not her love language. That's my love language, right? And so it is with God, though. Sometimes we think in this relationship that God's only going to be pleased if I can memorize the whole Bible by the end of the year. It's not realistic. You're going to fail at it, and then you're going to give up, and you're going to be right back to where you were in the beginning. But God is simply saying, just spend a little time with me. That's all I'm asking. I'm just asking for a little bit of time. And as you spend that little bit of time and you get to know me more, you will want more. This is why in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Guess what they're filled with? A greater hunger and a greater thirst for righteousness. Because as they get that righteousness, they're like, wow, I need more of this. So it is with our relationships. So let's all stand. I just want to take just a few minutes. You can pray where you are. I want you to think about something I want you to pray to ask God what is what is something small that you can change now to begin working on increasing your relationship because we all need to improve our relationship doesn't matter how long you've been in this thing. we all can grow in our relationship so let's just take just a few minutes pray and ask God to reveal in us what it is we need to change to help grow Lord I thank you for your word I thank you for the opportunity to stand before you the opportunity to teach your word God I want to love you, O God. I want to love you the way that you want to be loved. So I pray, teach us, O God, how to love you. Teach us, O God, how we are to grow in relationship with you, Lord. Help reveal to us an area within our lives that we need to change, that we need to work on, O God. Lord, we need to be more like you. Lord, as Paul said, we must decrease that you might increase, O God. Help us to turn our affections on things above and stop looking for the affections on this earth to be more content with you than we are with media, to be more content with you than we are with entertainment of this world. Lord, convict us because your conviction brings about change, O oh God. Convict us, O oh God. Speak to our hearts and let us know how to grow. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray as the psalmist David did. Let us hide your word in our heart that we would not sin against you. We give you all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen.